This morning, the title of the message is Family Feud. I wish it was a game, a game show, but it's a little bit more serious than, than that, based on Genesis chapter 27. We talk a lot about uh, families these days, and indeed we should, because the, the family structure, which is the very pillar of our society, is being challenged from so many different angles. And families have been attacked by the evil one from a long time ago, so this is nothing new. Nevertheless, families are God's idea, God's plan, it is not ours. He defined it, he set it up, and he will continue to grow humanity and continue to bring people to this world through the nurture and the love of the family structure, the family unit. When we fall in love, get married, start a family, we all seem to have this, this ideal of, in our heads of how perfect our family will be. Now, if you're still here, still here, and, and, and I suggest that you probably switch off now, if you're not here, we don't want to ruin the surprise of your perfect model of how you thought your family will turn out. But of course, for the rest of us, me mortal, sooner or later the reality does hit. You see, ever since the Garden of Eden, the conflict within the human heart actually starts within the family structure. The very place that God has designed for our most intense experience, our first, our most intense experience of love and devotion can also be the place where enmity and conflict are never far behind. Now, this, this is a story this morning is, is sad. It's a sad story of four people who are members of one family. All of our characters, uh, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob and Esau, they all come out looking ugly. You read this passage and think, and this is the chosen family of God? through whom the Messiah will come? Are you serious? And, it's, and yet, over and above that, God's faithfulness and sovereignty and grace shine through. To give you a broad idea of where we're going, this family unit, mom, dad and two boys and the twins, has been split in two factions. Each faction is headed by a parent who wants to live out their own expectations through their preferred son. That doesn't happen, does it? At the expense of the other. And even though there is no violence, we get close to it. And it is indeed a tragic story that unfortunately rings only too true today in the news. 
So first of all, let us look at the conspiracy of Isaac and Esau. So picture, um, I can always picture here a boxing ring and the announcer comes up, ladies and gentlemen, on this corner, right? So a bit of a wrestling match between mom on one side with her son and, and then dad on the other side with his son. So let's look at dad, Isaac and Esau, their conspiracy from verses 1 to 4. When Isaac was old, his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see. He called for his eldest son Esau and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I'm now an old man, I don't know, the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver, your bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me that I might give you my blessing before I die. By this stage, Isaac would be about 140 years old, so it is natural to feel that he's going to die. He's mentioned that in those verses a couple of times. I'm about to die, I'm about to die. But best we can make out, he's going to live for another 40 years. We previously mentioned that even through all the ups and downs of, of life, Father Abraham had a rough start, the ups and downs, but he definitely finished well. He finished well. He was full of years, success and a strong character and witness. In contrast, his son, poor old Isaac, seems to start really well and then slowly fizzle along the way. It's like the... uh, the, the, the race car that has to be pushed along to, to, finish, to finish to go across the finish line with an empty tank. That's the way I would sort of picture Isaac. Someone has well said, as Isaac grew older, he hardened his heart instead of his arteries. Now, depending on the translation that you have, the word game, game, as in wild animals and all of that, appears eight times. And savoury or tasty appears six times. Looks like Isaac, as he gets older, he is ruled by his senses. I would say sensual, but the moment I mention sensual, you only think, think of sexuality. But being sensual actually means that you are ruled by your senses. Namely, his stomach here. And it is noticeable that the word love appears only in the context of food and not his kids. I think Isaac actually is more qualified to be a judge on MasterChef than qualified to be a revered patriarch at this stage. You see... Despite what God told him, told both of them, Rebecca and Isaac was part of this, obviously, about the twins, God had told them that the, the elder will serve the younger. The elder will serve the younger. That is unmistakable. But Isaac, old man that he was, is becoming stubborn. Ah, 
it doesn't happen, does it? And he's determined, despite God's instruction, to pass on the blessing to Esau. Not only that, but he tried to make this transaction to set it all up, the, the dinner, the blessing, all of this, hiding it from his beloved wife, Rebecca, and son, Jacob. It's all very hush-hush. You see, normally a solemn moment like this would be given before the entire family, not in secret. Why did he hide? Because he knew all along that he was wrong. He knew God's command and in his stubbornness he was trying to do it his way. A bit like Frank Sinatra. wonder how many times we've made important decisions in life without including our spouses or even trying to hide it from them. Do we do this because we are afraid of not getting our way? Are we afraid of including others in the process, trying to hide and just it's going to be too complicated, so just go ahead and do things that are our way. It's not the best way to a healthy marriage, is it? Definitely not. And, I'm, and it seems to be that the, the, the longer people are married, it seems to be a settled pattern, unfortunately. It's like, you know, you're, you remember the days, you're visiting grandpa or grandma and visiting somebody, just don't tell my wife, okay, because she, she won't understand. No, there's a, there, well, how is it that there's an increasing secrecy as people live longer in marriage? How does that work? It was here. Then we come to the other partner in crime, who's Esau. What is it with two brothers, by the way? Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, now Esau and Jacob. We saw last week how, how Jacob has tricked, he, he had tricked his hungry brother into giving him an inheritance for a very cheap way, through a bowl of soup. But things got worse for Esau once he, he got married. He got married at the, about the age of 40. But it wasn't the fact that he got married that's the problem. He married two women and both of them were Hittites. He married outside of the people of God. And, and, and why? And he brought no end of grief to Isaac and Rebekah, he says. That's the end of the last chapter, isn't it? So it appears that he has already, Esau is, is already setting his heart in a, in a certain direction where he has no real interest or the, to, there's no spiritual dimension to, to his faith. He, he couldn't, dad wants to bless him and, and, and yeah, okay, but he's not qualified. He's irresponsible. He's the kind of guy who just lives for today, little interest in the things of God. If he wanted a blessing, it's because he just wants the material side of things.
despite knowing all of this, Isaac still persists with giving him the blessing. Despite the fact that Esau is spiritually unqualified, stubborn Isaac still wants to do it anyway. Because the blessing, you know, and the word blessing appears quite a lot here, the blessing concerns fruitfulness, uh, dominion, protection. Now, last week we spoke about the birthright which Esau sold to Jacob concerned inheritance. In this family, both the birthright and the blessing are connected to the Lord. There is that, yeah, you can make the oral the arrangements here, but it's that's, that vertical dimension which makes all, makes all the difference. However, from Isaac and Esau's perspective, they're separate. They're separate. They think that the blessing is still up for grabs. So Esau goes with the plan. That's one side of the corner of the ring. On the other side, there's the counter-conspiracy of Rebekah and Jacob in verses 5 to 17. We're just going to read verses 5 to 8. Now, Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. And when Esau left for the open country to hunt a gun, bring, bring it back, Rebekah said to her son, look, I have heard your father say to your brother Esau, bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully to what I tell you. The plot thickens. The Scottish novelist and poet Sir Walter Scott said in one of his poems, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. What can we say about Rebecca? Beautiful Rebecca. She was indeed, chapter 24 tells us that she was indeed very attractive in appearance. Despite her years, I reckon she's still very attractive in appearance, but she's becoming a bit ugly on the inside. The problem is a spiritual one, isn't it? She was right in clinging to the promise of God that the older will serve the younger, but went about it the wrong way. And it's obvious that Rebecca, not Jacob, is the mastermind behind the plot here. She had the promise from God, she had the promise from God that that said that the older would serve the younger, yet for some reason she didn't trust God's word and there is no reason, no record of, of, of Rebecca going to the Lord in prayer. Remember that she couldn't fall pregnant and Isaac prayed and she did get pregnant because it was God's provision. Why couldn't they go to prayer again? What else can we say about Rebecca? She is strong. She is resourceful. She is decisive. She is cunning. Despite living in a patriarchal society, she actually comes across as the dominant leader in the family. Boy, that doesn't happen today, does it? You know, there's the old man says, I am the man in this family and and the, and the grandma says, yeah, just let him say that. 
Let him believe that. Come, we'll just fix things, all right? See, patriarchal is just this, this, this jolly title that flashes and all the feminists get upset and everything else. In reality, a lot of places, even the, you know, the ethnic cultures, it's the woman who actually runs the joint. And she poses as, as a faithful, loving wife. But under all of this, she sought to further her favourite son's, Jacob, interest, even if it meant deceiving a blind man who was a husband. In the original language, listening suggests that this wasn't just happened, that she was just walking in the hallway and overheard the conversation. No, it's the, 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 the language suggests that she, this is something that she did quite regularly. It gives us an idea that there was already developing a, a level of mistrust and poor communication in this marriage. Now, after she overheard this, she could have confronted Isaac and said, what is it that you are doing? Confronted him with with the error. Instead, she goes and devises her own plan. You know, in Genesis 24, the, the match seems to be made in heaven, doesn't it? It's this verse after verse of this just this beautiful romantic novel And where did the marriage go that had such a promising beginning? How did it get off track? Yes, love and romance and roses, but now it's the war of the roses. Wow. So she ropes Jacob into the whole deal and even offers this insurance in case the whole thing gets found out, says, your curse be on me, my son. And I love this, only obey my voice. Obey my voice and go get them for me. Rebecca's basically saying, just do what I say. So desperate, she's willing to absorb any curse that Jacob incurs. And after mum's reassuring words, if you can call it that, Instead of questioning the intention of it all and questioning mum, he simply goes ahead with the plan as he would definitely be a beneficiary. So he thought. It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, we're only too familiar with kids used as pawns when families fall apart and things get messy and nasty. When separation and divorce happens, it, oh my goodness, I hear story after story. Jacob was clearly under pressure from mum, just as Esau was from dad. There's no moral compass here, is there? What is right and what is wrong. 
Because usually we learn our moral compass from our families. It gets, it gets pretty set by mum and dad and, and drilled and hammered into us about what is right and what is wrong. Especially us as the people of God have this tremendous opportunity and responsibility and accountability before God about what we are to do. The school might teach them what is legal and what is not, but what is right and wrong before the eyes of God is your responsibility and mine as parents. And don't shy away from that. Don't get somebody else to teach them what is right and what is wrong. So it's, it's so wrong when supposedly the people of God teach their own kids what is wrong, what is clearly wrong. In order to deceive Many young men, many kids, adolescents and young people will strive to do everything to please mum and dad. This is honourable. This is in fact part of the Ten Commandments. This is in fact what we looked at in Ephesians. But it can also lead to sin if it is not in faith. And this command, the command to honour your mother and father, does not excuse us if what they tell us to do is clearly wrong. And if you believe that mum and dad are wrong, if you're a child of God, first and foremost, then you're a child of mum and dad, and if you see that what they are doing or suggesting or implying is wrong, then you as a child, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, painful as it might appear to you, need to confront them with the truth. That is painful. That is painful. Particularly in some cultures like Asian and and African cultures, it's just something that you never ever do. And parents, are you a blessing to your children? How are you blessing them? What qualities are you encouraging in them? Are you encouraging more their earthly and temporary achievements and goals and titles and all of that, all these achievements that will fade away? Will fade away. As honourable as they are and as fantastic as they are, they will finish. Or are you even more proud to see them start to store some eternal treasures that are there for eternity. What are the values? What are the values that we are instilling in our children? Believing the lie from verses 18 to 29. Believing the lie. He went to his father and said, My father, yes, my son. He answered, Who is it? Couldn't see, see. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord, the Lord, 
The Lord your God gave me success. That's what prosperity looks like, doesn't it? Perhaps, perhaps Jacob never intended, deliberately intended this lie to become as big as it did. But once you start, it just gets bigger and bigger, doesn't it? With every test, every statement that he made, he began with, I am Esau, your firstborn, and then he even got God involved into it. Now, God is sovereign enough to accomplish his will in spite of your sin and my sin, but he's not the author of sin. So you can't say, the Lord has given me a piece about having sex with my girlfriend or boyfriend. There is nothing wrong with it because we love each other. Don't you know? We love each other. If it feels so good, how can it be so bad, right? Who are you kidding? Really? Who are you kidding? These are simply pious platitudes to conceal, to justify sin. Please be honest with yourself and others. Call it what it is. Don't spiritualise your sin by drawing God into it and own up to it, please. Now, I've had a go at the young, but sinful sinful and carnal behaviour is not the exclusive realm of the young. In his old age, Isaac seems to trust his senses more than God. The one who delighted in taste of game, and I can't say I'm not like that, and relies on his senses. What are the senses? Do you know how all these senses are mentioned here? Because he can't see, you see. Now, someone who is blind has to rely a lot more on the other senses. What are they? There's, there's taste definitely there. There is hearing. There is touch and smell. It's all there. So, he's become, in his old age, he's become this very sensual man that relies on his senses to make his choices. Yet they all fail him. Are you, are you relying on your senses to, to make your decisions? Really? It's, it's going to fail you. It's going to fail you. If that's all you, you're going on. So he fell hook, line and sinker. It's the same, taking it from another angle, it's the same error that billions in our scientific materialistic age insist on. They insist on making decisions solely on the basis of empirical evidence. If it can be tested, if it can be reproduced in a lab, then I will believe it. Empirical evidence, they call it. So we have all the different things that they call empirical empirical evidence and peer-reviewed and all the other rubbish that goes on. Really? It's simply another way if we cannot see it and hear it and feel it or touch it or smell it or it doesn't exist. It's not there. It's not real. But 
the consequences, verses 30 to 46. I'm going to read verses 33 to 34. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him and indeed he will be blessed. And when Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. Now, the, the, the consequences for this family are, are not as, as tragic as those of the first family where, when Cain killed Abel, but they get close, quite significant. You might have noticed that the most frequently used word here in this passage is the word blessing. And once the blessing was given, it had the force of a legal contract. It couldn't be revoked. And everything seems to be centering around it. Bottom line is this, that everybody in this family sought the blessings of God in their own way, scheming ways, but none of them actually wanted to bend the knee to God and seek it the proper way. And in the end, all four players, they paid a very huge price for their sin. For Isaac... For Isaac, there is this crucial point in the story. It's verse 33 when Isaac realises that he's been had and he said, Isaac trembled violently. Isaac trembled violently. Derek Kidner is one of the commentators, said this, Isaac has been fighting against God now and he now accepts defeat. His son Jacob was going to do the same thing. But he says he's now, he fought against God and now he accepts defeat. Therefore, you see, he trembled violently. James Montgomery Boyce sees here the conversion of Isaac. And I quote, this is what he says, this, even if it was not a conversion in the sense of Isaac being changed from an unsaved condition to a saved one, It was at least a conversion from the willful rejection of the sovereign decree of God to an obedient acceptance, reluctance of it. Somebody else who thought he was serving God but was not, the Apostle Paul, he thought he was serving God by persecuting Christians. And he recalled the words in the, in the book of Acts, the, the, the event of his conversion, the dramatic conversion. And, and, he, and he said, he said, Jesus talking to him, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You continue to do it. You continue to kick it against the goads. You are, you, are, you are going against me and it's hurting you. I want to ask you, are, are you... Deliberately going against God's will for your life. It's hurting you. You know that. It's hurting your family perhaps. And you still continue to do it. It doesn't make sense. 
It doesn't make sense. Who are you kidding? It is hard, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. Yes, it, it hurts, it bleeds, it's sore. Well, stop it. Just submit to his will. What about Rebecca? As a result of her plot, poor Rebecca now fears the loss of both of her sons. Rebecca, after this, will never see the son that she loves again. That's the consequence. Another sad thing is that in verse 46, um, it's actually the only time in this passage where husband and wife actually speak to one another. Do you notice that? And it's all just a little bit too late. Through all the manipulation and through all of that planning and scheming and all of that, it all ends pretty bad, doesn't it? What about Jacob? His victory is bittersweet. The chapters that follow describe how the search for blessing becomes the struggle for his life where he tries to earn it. He lived a life of isolation from his family for the next 20 years, always looking over his shoulder in fear, in fear of his brother. And after humiliating his father, he never sees him alive again. Furthermore, because Jacob left, he left Esau everything. Remember all that scheming and everything about the stew and all of that? He left everything to him anyway. He forfeited all the material prosperity that would have been his. And Esau, and Esau lamented missing out on the, on the blessing of the Jew and the fatness before fatness became unpopular, of course. But his descendants would live by the sword and would be subservient to Israel. Now let me finish on this. Simply call it scandalous grace. The most amazing thing is that through this act of deception, Despite the act of deception, God's will was done. It's, I suppose it's a bit like the, the Judas episode, isn't it? Despite the, the betrayal and, and everything else, the selling out, God's will of his son dying for our sins was done. Because God's choice, Jacob here, did in fact end up with a blessing. It doesn't justify the deception, obviously, but it does demonstrate that God works through, even through the weakness of sinful men to accomplish his purposes. This story then, seen in the light of the glory of God, is simply another story of the sovereignty of God that we struggle against. And yet he's sovereign over all. And again, you might be asking yourself the question, how could God choose someone like Jacob? You have got to be kidding me. 
How could God choose Isaac or Rebecca? God knows that the family is a mess. I think maybe the more appropriate question should be, why does God choose anybody? We're all a mess. The only answer is grace. Tim Keller says, and I quote, God brings his scandalous grace into the lives of people who don't seek it, don't deserve it, continually resist it and don't even appreciate it after they have been saved by it. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? That is the story of Genesis 27. That is the story of the, of the Bible. It is the story of every Christian and it is my story and your story. God continues to work through his amazing, glorious, scandalous grace. Amen to that.